The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. Blue Pineapple Travel are experienced travel agents who help you design the perfect trip. They're all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. The world is a lot different these days, and the agents at Blue Pineapple Travel are ready to help you safely navigate it. From helping you figure out the conscientious destinations to helping you figure out entry protocols for different countries, the agents at Blue Pineapple Travel are there for you. Looking to work abroad for an extended period of time? Looking to attend virtual school from a remote location? These are all things that Blue Pineapple Travel can help you do. Again, their website is bluepineappletravel.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itlcoaching.com. ITL Coaching and Performance exists to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITL coaches are real people with phones, emails, and the desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in their ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to coaching, so there's always someone available to answer questions and to help adjust your training schedule. An ITL coach will be glad to meet with you and to chat about your goals and find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, their website is itlcoaching.com. And finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by SlayRx. You can find those good folks at www.slayrx.com. Are you needing a pleasant spark to take your endurance game to the next level? Are you needing an all-natural, high-quality, customized hydration powder with or without sugar to stave off cramping and dehydration? Are you in need of an effective all-in-one fuel to slay your endurance efforts? Look no more. SlayRx. SlayRx has a really good line of products to serve our most pleasant exhaustion podcast listeners. Let's start with Michelle's favorite, Spark Plug, which replaces sports gel and gross post-race strips to the Porta Johns. It's a poppin' electrolyte powder in small, easily carried tubes. There's also an all-in-one endurance fuel. It has all of your electrolytes, clean fuel, and for no extra cost, your essential amino acids with or without caffeine. And it costs about one-third as much as other brands' combo rocket fuels. Finally, they have my favorite, SlayRx Hydrate Powder, which comes with or without sugar and varying strengths of electrolytes based on your individual needs. They can find those individual needs on the free quiz online at SlayRx.com or with in-person testing like Patrick and I did at their headquarters on podcast episode number 114. Hydrate is the fuel that I use during the Blue Ridge Relay this year, and I recommend it for all of you as well. SlayRx products are 100% natural, come in great flavors, are vegan friendly, and the Hydrate Light is keto friendly. They've all been well researched and developed by a UGA food scientist who's also an Ironman athlete. The products are tested by the pros and endorsed by your fellow endurance athletes and hardworking folks in the community. The free sweat quiz and their products can be found at SlayRx.com, on Amazon.com, or at your local run and bike shop if it's available. You can use the code PLEASANT22 for 10% off at their website. Thanks to SlayRx for sponsoring us, y'all. Give them a try. We appreciate our sponsors, and thanks to all of them for helping us bring you the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITO Coaching and Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and Slay RX. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a college professor and I'm the father of twin boys. My name is Michelle Frank. I'm also an endurance athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. I am a CPA and a mom to three girls. My name is Eric Hall. I always go last. <laughs> athlete and coach in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm the father to three teenagers. I'm an engineer 
and I'm a husband to a beautiful wife who is also an engineer and got better grades than me in college in the same degree at the same college. You know, Eric, you've been saying for a while here that you're the father of three teenagers. I feel like at least two of them are no longer teenagers. Isn't it Vizunzi's birthday today, as a matter of fact? In fact, it is. Uh, Vizunzi turns 20 today, so he is no longer a teenager. There we go. So I'm down to technically one teenager because Grace who arguably is the most mature of the three of them <laughs> is still a teenager, but the other two, they are 20 year olds. So right, I there we go. Like there we go. There we go. Very good. Very good. Um, well, we, uh, we have tonight on the docket, our book of the quarter, uh, Michelle, as you will recall about a month ago, asked for an extension on the book of the quarter. And so even though this is our book from quarter two and we are a good three weeks into quarter three now, um, we're going to be talking about Out of Thin Air by Michael Crawley tonight. Um, uh, before we do that, let's check in with each other real quick. Um, Michelle, what you up to? Um, I'm recovering from a big road trip. <laughs> right on. Where'd you go? Um so I have a thing with just the national parks, like wanting to cool. kind of just a bucket list. To, um, we had a different trip plan, but I did get COVID about 18 days ago. Not that anyone's counting um, and <laughs> switched it around a little bit. So hit Mammoth Cave in Kentucky and then went over to New River Gorge in West Virginia and then into the Shenandoah Wilderness in Virginia. And um, I absolutely loved New River Gorge. They there's this one day in the fall called bridge day where they actually shut down the bridge and you can run over it or walk over it and people base jump off of it and you can cycle. And I think I'm going to go back. Actually, <laughs> I think West cool, Virginia is my new, uh, it's like easier to get to than Vail. Okay. <laughs> it's just, you know, get in my car, but I just, yeah, of the three uh, mammoth cave is super cool. I would think like that's, I and told you on that. That's in Kentucky, right? Yeah. I mean, the cave is, They've got like 420 miles of cave. It's six different layers deep. We took a four hour cave tour. We were like in the third layer. It was just about the coolest thing I've ever seen, but it's not a national park. I mean, you kind of, it's like a one and done. Um, Shenandoah was a little bit of a disaster, just made some bad decisions. And uh, as she usually does, mother nature one kicked our asses. So um, I'm <laughs> recovering from COVID and recovering from that now. Right. but otherwise feeling pretty good so but you were recovered enough from covid to be able to do some hiking in Shenandoah and all that sort of thing so that's good yeah we had a more of a longer harder i think backpacking idea or what we wanted to do but once i got covid we switched it all and it ended up being a disaster anyway that part of it but it's okay <laughs> <laughs> i'm, never well, going back to I'm glad the good parts were good i'm glad the good parts uh, were good eric what you up to man i am running Right on, man. So I've been able to build up some mileage. I'm up to about 40 miles a week, which is really good. Um, I I have transitioned to running only in the morning. So I'm, I'm staying out of the sun, not necessarily staying out of the heat and humidity, but that was more of a lifestyle decision to afford more time in the evening mm -hmm. um, with whatever kid happens to be in our house and Melissa. Um, and then, um, yeah, so I'm kind of backing off the biking and I'm picking up the running awesome. and things are going well. I had, a, I had a hill workout this morning and I got out of bed and I said, this is not going to be a good day. So this, this is just not going to do what, you know, go well. 
and I got out there and it was probably one of my best days in, in a month or more. Awesome. Um, I really, I, I actually really enjoyed myself, um, did well, felt good and I still feel good. So good. it's kind of like the, 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 the try of a good running day. So. Did you, did you do, uh, did you do an Ethiopian style hill workout where you picked either a long hill and a, or a short hill and you just ran up and down it until you reached the hour mark, <laughs> you know, as I, we read wanted, about in this book, I wanted to do that. I actually mm -hmm. did want to do that. And I've tried to take some of the stuff that we read in the book and apply them just to my everyday runs, mm -hmm. but no, no, uh, my run was only 54 minutes long. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Very so I didn't and it include power. warm up and warm down i imagine that did cool that did include a warm up and a cool down yep very good very good i did a run on tuesday which was on the treadmill which was definitely not ethiopian um but uh but uh, i tried to do one of the things they talked about in the book where where it says that they include all sorts of different paces in pretty much every single run <laughs> yep. um, and so so I, I started off even more gently and slow than i normally would and then i kind of settled into a to what i consider to be a pretty good pace and i upped it to like close to marathon pace or marathon goal pace for about 10 minutes and then backed it way down and then included some sprints and um and so yeah i rode on strava afterwards with a with a bit of ethiopian rhythm there um, did you did you zigzag <laughs> back and forth on my treadmill? Yeah. <laughs> no, I was I was thinking about that today too. But yeah, we're going to talk more about the book and some of the both miscellaneous and some of the big takeaways that we had from it here in just a minute. But uh, but yeah, no, um, I thought about that today because I went out running outside today and I was thinking about how they would basically get into a field or a forest and rather than running the same route every single time, they'd literally make it up as they go along and zigzag all over the place. Um, that would be a big, I think for a lot of, uh, certainly for all three of us, but I think for a lot of American runners, that would be a big adjustment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, you also can't do that. Right. You're going to be in, you know, where I am, if you're off road, you're going to be in, you know, pine straw up to your knees mm -hmm. and you're going to, then you're going to end up going down the hole of some rotted out tree trunk. Right. Right. Know? Right. So, right. I will say this. I, I have taken on the, the, like I said, bits and pieces, but the starting off just like super slow. I think in the book he mentions, you know, going out at 10 minute, 12 minute pace almost, and then ratcheting that down. And that's made a big difference to me because, you know, we, we struggle with these Achilles issues and that if you try to go out at the pace you plan to run at in the neighborhood I live in, mm -hmm. you're instantly running uphill. Your muscles are cold. Your heart hasn't caught up yet. And your Achilles says not today. Right. So I've taken the first half mile of all of my runs uh, recently and said, you know what, I'm just going to kind of plot along. I'm just going right. to just plot along. And then as soon as I get to the edge of my neighborhood, because you got the, the kind of the top of the hill, then I'll start picking it up right. and moving. No, it's funny you say that. So so one of the, the, the big things that he comes back to over and over again in the book, and we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here, is, is talking about how, um, how the runners are kind of intuitive. And a lot of their practices um, that are, are very intuitive. Um, and, and one of the things he talks about, like you said, is starting so slowly. Um, I, over the course of the past couple of years, um, have gotten to where I always walk to the head of my neighborhood. Um, and that's just something I kind of have to do that just as I warm up and as I'm getting going and as I'm shaking off the cobwebs, I walk to the end of my neighborhood, which is about, what, 300 meters um, and, uh, and then when I turn on to the main thoroughfare at the end of my neighborhood, that's when I actually start running one way or another. Um, okay. 
But, that actually but, sounds really good. That's just going to throw off all the exacts of what I know I would run if I did that. <laughs> the accountant can't quite take it. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to adjust by like two tenths of a mile on each side. I don't mm -hmm. know. Yep. I typically, I typically walk like I cool down walk. I always walk mm -hmm. at the end, but mm -hmm. um, I bet you get I that, that extra active that extra activation by just walking that three hundred meters rather than just mm -hmm. stepping right into a jog. I think so too. Um, yeah, I, I always stop, you know, a uh, hundred meters from my house for sure. And walk the last little bit to my house. I've gotten in the habit over the course of the past month because I really, um, because I really want to prioritize doing strides. I've gotten in the habit of the last month of basically in the last mile coming all the way to a walk and then doing strides and walking and strides and walking and strides and walking for up to a mile. In, in the last mile. And of course, when I put it on Strava and it says that my last mile was, you know, 1030 or something like that, when the rest of the run was at 730 pace that I always, you know, I have to be okay with that. Um, but I think it's worth it because I think that, that doing strides is something that's super important for me right now. Um, but anyway, um, let's talk about the book. Um, there are lots of other things we should probably say here that are going on in the world right now. Um, the, the world of endurance sports, the, the tour de France is wrapping up. Um, the tour de France FEMS is getting ready to start. Um, the world championships in Oregon, uh, here in North America have been fantastic. And those are wrapping up. Uh, there was a course record at the Badwater 135 that some people are kind of feeling doubtful about. We definitely want to talk about that. Um, and so all sorts of other things kind of happening in the world of endurance sports uh, that we definitely want to talk about, but we're not talking about any of those tonight. Um, we'll talk about those next week. Rather, tonight we we're talking about Michael Crawley's Out of Thin Air, which two of us really enjoyed and one of us did not so much. <laughs> but I am very thankful for the extension. Thank you for uh, accommodating me. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so Michael Crawley's Out of Thin Air, um, the Subtitle is Running Wisdom and Magic from Above the Clouds in Ethiopia. Um, Michael Crawley is a guy from the UK, um, and he has a master's degree in literature, um, in French and British literature. And then he got his PhD um, in anthropology um, as part of doing this book. This was basically his, his, uh, his anthropological it's research for his PhD. Michelle, what'd you say? I was going to say it was almost like a thesis, like a built in. He like lived his thesis. Exactly. Well, <laughs> in, in anthropology, um, sort of the, the standard um, methodology is what's called ethnography. Um, and in order to do that, you literally have to go live with your subjects for an extended period of time. Um, and cool. so that's what he did. He literally went and lived in Ethiopia for 15 months um, and he learned a lot of the language and he embedded himself with this group of runners that he met while he was there um, just to get to know a little bit more about how they operate and how they believe and what some of their norms and values are. Um, and, and from that, given the fact that he's a really good writer, you know, he has a master's in literature, like we said, um, and the fact that, that he was coming to it from a really heavily academic point of view, um, I think that it was just a, a fantastic book. Um, offered a lot of insights, not only on Ethiopians, but on running itself that, that I found really valuable. Um, Eric liked it too. Michelle, not so much. I mean, <laughs> but that's the okay. only class I ever dropped while I was at Emory, like you would start and you could have a drop window was anthropology. All right. So it's, I don't know. I, I, I believe that, that you guys are in the trend of, it was an amazing book and you loved it. And I think mm -hmm. that's 
what the majority of people say, but what can I say? I struck out on this one. Can't love them all. And that's fine. I, I don't, I don't, I don't begrudge you that at all. And I appreciate you being here with us, Michelle, you know, by the same token, the one class you dropped was anthropology. One of the fields that my PhD field draws on is anthropology. And so, so, so literally the one it's... class you dropped is the field in which I got a PhD. Um, this is so why yeah, I ask I'm obviously all bringing the something different to this book than you are. <laughs> right. And this is why I ask you all of these annoying questions that I don't understand the answers to. So, so exactly. And, and, and I ask you, well, I don't ask you questions because, because I am so, what you do is so far afield from what I do that I don't even know the questions to ask. Yeah. Huh? Um, you say things like, let me ask you something. Do you understand what culture is? <laughs> No, no, I, but I don't ask you about like accounting and tax oh, brackets no, and that right. sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, that's boring. Yeah. Nobody yeah. wants to know about that. So. <laughs> you don't find it boring. Um, Eric, since you did enjoy it, I know that you did. And Eric, you actually, you so while we're talking about things we bring to it, Eric, you lived for a while in, in South Africa, right? Um, and so, so tell us a little correct. bit about the, the time you spent in South Africa and, and how that might have changed some of your sensibilities that you actually brought into reading the book here. Oh, that's actually a good point. I, because I didn't think about that at all. Um, I, I would say maybe because of our time in South Africa, I'm a little more open to differences between cultures. I'm a little more uh, understanding of uh, different belief systems, or maybe even uh, I can point out a specific example of different ways of maybe warming up you know, and, and how that linked, like from the, the soccer program I was in, I was part of in South Africa and how what they did for warmups kind of linked to what the Ethiopian, what, what he describes, what Michael Crawley describes is how the Ethiopians did their warmups for running. Um, I hadn't really thought about that, George, but maybe that's, maybe that's something that just opened me up to the possibilities of, of this a little more. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Now yeah. you got me thinking. I might be thinking about that for the next hour. <laughs> Good. Well, and, you, and you'll probably circle back around to it because that's something that you tend to yeah. do. Um, but I, I think I think it also, I, I think it, um, because you had a good experience in South Africa, largely, and you look back on that time fondly, right? Um, oh, yeah. I, think, oh, yeah. I think there were some of the things that he might have related and talked about along the way that I think sort of reminded you of some of the things, because you texted us a few times throughout and you said like, I'm really enjoying his use of all the African phrases and things like that. Oh, I, um, I do I do love language and I love learning phrases and some of the phrases, you know, Africa is not Africa. Um, South Africa is not Ethiopia. Right. However, um, there are phrases that they used, words that they used that reminded me of things that I either um, heard when I was in Uganda or when I was in South Africa, and um, they they weren't even they weren't translated exactly the same, but you could see how they 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 related. So yeah, I I can agree with that one hundred percent. I enjoyed the that part of the book. So those parts of the book. There wasn't one specific part. Can we talk about why he chose to go to Ethiopia and and not go to like? Uh, Kenya or Aiten, wherever. Mm-hmm. I feel like most people focus on the Kenyans. Like mm-hmm. very few people go and do what he did with the Ethiopians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I think it's an excellent question. Um, and what he said in that opening chapter is that he was motivated to do it precisely because of what you just said, that everybody's I done Kenya. So. Okay. 
And, okay. and, and he said, Ethiopia, it's a little bit more of a mystery. And so I, I think that that was for him a personal choice. Um, and, you know, he named it out of thin air, not just because it was, you know, the thin air of the place, but he says he named it out of thin air also because, because we know so little about Ethiopians and their training that sometimes sure. their performances tend to come out of thin air. Right. And so, so I think part of his, his, his choice was to try and, and shed some light on that. And so I think he was interested in it personally because of that. But then also I can say that, that um, when you're working on a PhD or when you're trying to do any sort of scholarly work, you always are looking for the gaps in the literature. You're always Got looking it. for the things that nobody else has done before. And so if he were just to go to, to I-10 or to, to do something that somebody had done before, like his, his advisors would have been like, no, this has been done. We're not going to let you sure. do this. We're not going to give sure. you a PhD for doing, you know, writing the same thing that some other dude has already written. Um, and so he was kind of trying to, I think, go into a new area um, for both personal and professional reasons. And I thought it was fascinating. And I think that, that ultimately, I think that one of the takeaways for me even though this isn't something I necessarily put in my notes, was that Ethiopia kind of is a different place. Um, yeah. And and from Kenya. Um, and that that as we've been watching like the world championships this week, like a lot of the things he describes about the points of view of the Ethiopian runners, I was like, well, no wonder they're not in the 1500. No wonder they're not in the 800. Like the Kenyans are in the 800 and the 1500. The Ethiopians aren't. Um, and it's because a lot of the values and the ideals that they bring to running don't necessarily lend towards success in an 800 or 1500. They do right. in a marathon in 10,000 meters, um, but but not those short distances. Yeah. And when you say values, you need to include their why. Yeah, yeah. Why are they doing this? This is a profession, mm -hmm. not, not necessarily a passion. It might become a passion, but it is a profession. Right. Right. So that was one of the things. So, so let's start talking about some of the things that stood out to us and some of our big takeaways and all that sort of thing. That was one of the things that really stood out to me in this book was, was, was the points of view of the people who actually do or actually become runners, that, that this was something that is a job to them. It's very much a job to them. Um, and it's something that they sort of, they attempt for a while to see how it goes. And if they don't feel like they're going to be good at it, or they don't feel like they're going to be able to make it, or they don't feel like they're going to be able to earn enough money, they do something else. Um, yep. And and they don't run for fun. They don't run for health. They don't like once they're done running, they're done running. Like just like you would retire from a job. Um, and and in a lot of ways, it helps to explain the reason why they they race the way they do, because it's pretty much an all or nothing type proposition. Like you either win the race and get the big money or you don't. And, well, and it's and, systemic at, at a, at a um, country level mm -hmm. and like a governmental level. Uh, at one point he talks about um, visas for athletes are used as a method of limiting which runners go to which races to represent Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in that, if, if, I mean, I was just trying to think of like the, the freedom we have to go wherever we want and race wherever we want. And if you're good, you, you know, based on your contract or whatever, there's nothing limiting you to go run somewhere. The government is not going to say, no, I'm sorry, I'm not going to give you a visa for whatever reason. The Tokyo that's actually Marathon. Something that, <laughs> well, that's something that they have to deal with. And I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, just one, one point back on, on the, the original question that Michelle asked, there's a quick passage 
you know, he spends a lot of time and I think it's Bekoji. Is that how B-E-K-O-J-I? Mm-hmm. And his statement, this is a quote directly out of the book. How has a small town of 17,000 inhabitants produced the first ever African woman to win an Olympic gold medal, the first ever African woman to win the Olympic marathon, and holders of the women's 5,000 meter and the men's 5,000 meter and 10,000 meter, and that's Kenanisa Bekele, world records. How? And so I think there was not just a no one's ever done this, someone should have done this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I think it's an excellent point. Yeah. The, 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 here, here's this amazing place with all this amazing success. And, and, and that, that actually leads into one of my biggest takeaways from it is that throughout the book, he pushes back on this idea that, that, um, the, the Ethiopians and the Kenyans, but he's talking more specifically about Ethiopians right, right. are just such good natural runners. And it's cause they all grew up and they all have to run to school when they're growing up and they live at altitude <laughs> and there's something about their physiology that just makes them so superior and blah, 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 blah. And, and he's a social scientist, mind you. And so of course that's kind of his job to push back against physical scientists, against biologists and physiologists and all those sorts of things. We're going to take that point of view of it. Um, but but at the same time, he's he's very um, he's very strongly critical of that idea that the reason why the Ethiopians are so good is just because they're bound to be good. Um, and the reason why the, the, the Kenyans are good is just because they're Kenyan and Kenyans are automatically better by way of nature. Um, um, and he goes into a lot of the things that that are built into not only the the society, not only the mindsets of, of people in Ethiopia, but also the institutional practices that they have there um, that, that ultimately make their infrastructure for world domination and running um, uh, stronger than ours. Uh, I would, I would also say that, go ahead. No, no, you go. Well, I would also say, and I, I do think it's more the beginning of the book where he talks about this, but I think we have this image of, at least when it comes to the, the, the Africans, and I think we mostly, it's actually mostly the Kenyans that reflect this, but you come from like absolute destitute and, you know, poverty and you start training and you don't even have shoes for the first several months. But he makes a point that the Ethiopian um they come more from a place of a little bit of privilege. Like they, yeah. they almost have like a little bit of a, of a head start. The infrastructure supports it in a way where they're not, you know, starting running barefoot or so to speak. Right. Yeah, no, totally. Um, and, and in fact, yeah, he, he, he says that very thing. He says that, that this idea that it's all the poor people that are doing it because they come out of poverty. That's why they're so much better. He says, no, in fact, it's the opposite. He says, if you're poor, you can't become a runner. In Ethiopia, like you have to have some means in order to be able to get it done. He, he relates early in the book, I think it's like chapter two, this one conversation that he was out for a run with somebody and they ran into a guy with a briefcase. And the guy with the briefcase says, what does it take to be a runner in Ethiopia? And of course, as a social science research, he was like, yes, like struck gold. Right. Um, and the guy goes through and says, well, really, there's three things. Number one, you need time. And it's like, you know, you only have time if you have enough money to have time. Right. right. Time is kind of a luxury. He says, number two, you need um, um, uh, you need gear. Um, and so you need like the space for it, but you also need like shoes and you need clothing and and all sorts of other things like that. Right. Um, and then third, he says uh, you need good quality food. 
to be able to, to recover and to be able to do it. And, and these are not things that somebody who's growing up in poverty are, are going to have. And so he very expressly says, you know, there's lots of reasons why this idea of the poor kid who's having to run to school with no shoes on, like there's lots of reasons why that image and that explanation for why East African runners are so great is wrong. But when it comes to that specific one, just the poverty threat of that, he says, that's just flat wrong. He says, that's just flat incorrect. Um, And it's worth mentioning, and he never says this, but I'm going to say it. And and I think it's worth mentioning that I think, I think there's, it's, it's only a very small jump to go from there's something physiologically different about them that makes them better runners. That's real close to racism. Like that, that, that's a real short step from, from being able to say, well, they're physiologically different from, from, from those of us who are of European descent. And that makes them better distance runners to saying, well, they're physiologically different from who we are. And so that means that they are, they are not nearly as advanced intellectually and morally as, as we are. And so, so he never actually calls out like that point of view and that narrative as being a racist narrative. I think he could have. Um, That's a good point. Agreed. Um, yeah, George, you mentioned one thing about, um, well, you're in your, your list of three, having good food and having equipment. One thing that did strike me was um, that infrastructure is mostly uh, social infrastructure. Yeah, it's public it's infrastructure. Not, it's not infrastructure in the, in the sense of great tracks right. to run on. No, or it's great, in fact, the opposite. <laughs> it's the exact opposite. Yeah. And he, he makes this point, um, and this might be a little tangential, but he makes the point about if you have to work, you have to live in town and you don't have as much time. So you end up, and the whole air concept comes in this, you end up running in town. Mm-hmm. And that those aren't the best surfaces to run on. Mm-hmm. The, you're, you're running around vehicles and their exhaust and you're tired because you have this other job. Um, if, if, but the, the infrastructure they have in places, if you can get into that, you're running on all these different surfaces in all these different areas with other people that have the same motivation, but it's not like you're at some beautiful track right. or you know, some wonderful facility. Yeah. Um, and you know, I get the circle back now, your, your comment about my time in South Africa, so the academy that I coached at, we were a high-level coaching staff working with uh, phenomenal athletes that, whose background was, you know, they grew up in, you know, shacks made of corrugated metal, uh, you know, and we had to transport them everywhere. And our fields were not good fields. I'll just, just, put, it, just put that out there. They were not good fields. And basically, we were supporting the kids with funding the funding that was outside generated for the for the academy the kids had to do some small portion of their support but really it was it was outside funded the interesting thing was uh, our biggest rival uh, club was Ajax um, Ajax Cape Town Ajax Cape Town had an all uh, turf facility right they had they had sprinkler systems on their turf to cool it down and to slow the ball down for games right so this is not grass this is artificial turf beautiful artificial turf fence nobody can get in you know just and then they had a weight room they had a big clubhouse and this this is you know Ajax this is the Cape Town arm of Ajax the, the global club they're our biggest rivals and we were able to you know 
stand up to them, I guess you'd call it. We were able That's to cool. go to their house and win. Not every time, but when we showed up, it wasn't, we're going to roll this team. It was, these guys are serious. And the, the fields that we trained on, before the game, we had to go out and stamp down all of the gopher holes. <laughs> we, we, had to, we had to, like, get the glass off the field. We had to, you know, our fields were not level. Our, our goal, we had to put our goals together every game because if you left them up, they'd get stolen. You know, we had a cop patrolling the parking lot during the game so cars wouldn't get stolen. You know, that's the kind of facility that we had. And I, I think maybe as he was talking about the, the grass tracks that just so happened to be on a fairly flat surface, but maybe tilted a little bit, you know, or running laps around a field where it wasn't really a field for running laps and they were just kind of running across it, that did resonate with me mm -hmm. because th that was who we were. We were, you know, the ragtag group showing up for the games and you could laugh at us when we walked up, but when the game started, there was no laughing. And the, the and I, I think that that's an important, the distinction you make there between like physical infrastructure and social infrastructure. Um, I think that that's, that's an important distinction. Um, and that and that's a distinction that's mirrored in Ethiopia, as as Michael Crawley described it, that, right. that, that, like you said, they didn't have these nice tracks. But I mean, he goes into detail talking about just how much of a professional league there is for such a wide variety of runners. Like oh, yeah. there's the army league and there's one that's sponsored by the prisons and there's one that's sponsored by the banks. And there's one that's sponsored by all these different things that are designed to build, to discover and to build and to salary they pay and house professional runners. Um, and it reminds you of the English football leagues. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The, the, the pyramid exists. The, the, so the, and you've got teams that are practicing, you know, just the town team that's just practicing on whatever they got. And then you've got Arsenal and Manchester United and Manchester City. In the FA Cup, they're all on even footing because the structure, the social structure exists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and what do we have in the United States? I mean, 20 years ago, we had literally nothing. We have, we have the college system, obviously, right? We have the NCAA. But then to make that step from the NCAA to, to being the next level of, of athlete, we had literally nothing 20 years ago. Um, and then it was only about 20 years ago that you had like Zap and, um, and, and Hanson's uh, and places like that actually starting to come online. And then now like that idea has started to take off a little bit, but it's definitely, it's still not publicly funded. You know, um, it's still mostly funded by like shoe companies um, and, and stuff like that. Um, and so the infrastructure, the social infrastructure they have in place there, um, I think that their results relative to our results show that having that social infrastructure there is actually more important than having the physical infrastructure. Um, we have the right. physical infrastructure here, the United States. I mean, Lord knows we have how many tracks are within six miles of your house. You know, um, a lot, obviously mine too. Um, whereas they have like literally two tracks in the entire country of Ethiopia. Um, but they have clubs and a system and competitions and, and salaries and, and support for people who show some promise for distance running. Um, and that's one of the reasons why they win that is not related to their physiology. <laughs> right. Um, and that's yep. important. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, there's lots of other things he points out um, about that, that, that pushing back on that set of natural runners idea. Um, one of the things I really like this one part I really liked was um, when he was talking about how, how they're so in tune with themselves and how they, they get to know their bodies really, really well. Um, and he has two different sections in the book where he actually pushes back on like the breaking two project. And I thought that was really interesting and, and such a cool take on uh, the, the breaking two project. Um, specifically, he talks a lot about the Nike one, not about uh, Giannis Pizzolatis' one and not about the Ineos one that ultimately resulted in Kipchoge running 159.40. Um, but the breaking two one where, where Nike you know, put him on the track in Monza and, and uh, they did a whole bunch of testing of Kipchoge and, and Lalisa DeSisa and Zirzane Tedesi. Um, and and they, they tried to sort of frame it as this, we're going to take this hyper-scientific approach to training. We're going to, to give all of our advanced understanding of the physiology of distance running to the raw materials of Tedesi and Kipchoge and Decisa, uh, and, and they're all going to be able to run under two hours, and, and, and none of them did. Um, and, and what well, he and says- The other thing he points out there is that the, the testing showed that it wasn't, like the testing was highly variable between the three of them. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't like, this is what makes a good runner. Right. Right. Like, like there, there, there's so, there's so many, and, and, and it's also the testing itself was, was not revelatory. Like exactly. they, 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 they didn't, yeah. they didn't find out what made Kipchoge so good. And in part it's yeah. because they put him on a treadmill and it was literally the first time he'd ever been on a treadmill. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, he like didn't know what to do. And they're like, how is he yeah. able to run so fast when his numbers are not quite right? It's because he's never done a treadmill dude. And he's worried about falling off the back of it. Um, right. <laughs> but, 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 what Michael Crawley argues here is that that whole approach of saying, well, they've been, you know, these savages out running on unpaved roads for so long, and now we're going to give them all the benefits of science. And that's just going to push all three of them under two hours. He's saying like that, that was totally the wrong approach because they are in tune with their body. They know what they're doing. They're smart. They train well. You need you should have started with them and what they do. And then talked about like ways of tweaking and improving and things like that. And, and that's not what they did, um, which I thought was, I, I, I liked that whole section just because I liked, I liked that critical take on the whole breaking two thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, Michelle, give us something bad about it. Because <laughs> we're talking about things we like. To, and, and, and we know that you weren't totally into it because you dropped your anthropology class back at Emory. But, uh, but, but, but tell, us, tell us some of the things that, to, to give, 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 give us a criticism. I thought it was a little bit like, and I understand he went there and he lived there, but I, I felt like it was a little bit like Groundhog's Day. I got a little bit confused in, you know, like how many times did he leave for a run at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. and he took his coffee, but the other guy doesn't drink coffee until the evening. And I got, I never could figure out, you know, who he was running with. I like to keep the names and yeah. it felt like a repeating storyline with, um, but with different people almost mm -hmm. every time. Um, I, I, I did wish that like in the, on the first couple of pages, he would have had like characters. This yeah, is this person because because he ultimately ended up. I mean, and this is one of the themes of the book. He ultimately ends up 
embedding himself with a pr- fairly large group of runners, right? Sure. Yeah. And so he would say, today I ran with this guy and this guy. And then we met up with this guy. Then the other day I ran with these other, and, and it was sometimes hard to kind of keep track of who was who. Yeah. Um, so that was frustrating to me. Also, I, and maybe I missed this. I don't think, okay, so I have 28 minutes left. I don't know if I should say that. Maybe we'll edit that. But um, if I missed it, then I would have liked to hear a little bit more about, um, you know, how it did or maybe didn't actually affect his running once he kind of went back home and, and put it all together. You had um, to read the it, last chapter to know I was that. Say, that's the last chapter. <laughs> <laughs> so you can just delete oh, that whole so part. <laughs> you can just delete the whole part then. So. <laughs> no, I mean, right. So I'm fully admitting, I mean, I really struggled to get into this book. I do have 28 minutes left, <laughs> but Eric and but, but I think George, it's, I think you it's both you told that, me that there's you both told me there's, I don't miss anything in the last chapter. And this is well, like well, the because, because you don't miss anything about Ethiopia. You only miss the part about him. Yeah. So <laughs> Michelle, I would say, and, and I was going to, I'll give you my negative commentary and it, it actually relates to what you both just said. There are, he says early in the book to two- call Kenanisa Bekele Kenanisa is to not appropriately, or to call right. him Bekele is to that not. That was fascinating by the way is to not appropriately address who he is. Right. Um, and so he says, I'm going to make an attempt in this book to always refer to him as Kenanisa Beckley. He does that for about two chapters, and then he just throws it away. Yeah. And it drives me insane because later in the book, there are two characters, the driver of the bus and a runner. They both have the exact same name. And in two paragraphs, he will talk about one and then the other, and you do not know which one he's talking about. So this is and then there's right, a third right. character whose name is the almost the same. You just take the last letter off in the book. And and so, so Michelle, I agree. I got lost sometimes as to who he was talking about, yeah. and I finally just had to give up. So no joke, up. I listened to chapters four to six multiple times. Hmm. Like, and I could, and I, the people just, I just, like how many Geber Celestes are there already? A like, lot. did we, did it? So there's, there, know, there was a, there was the a Geber Celeste that we had one just now. Yes. Right. Thank you very much. So you can Apparently imagine. That's like the Jones of Ethiopia. Right. Yeah. So I guess also just to my point, and I understand is that I felt like there was this, I felt like he wanted his running and his development to be maybe not a perfectly parallel storyline, but he definitely, you know, introduced it as he's going to see what this does for his running and how he mm-hmm. feels. And maybe he's never going to run a 204 or 208 marathon, but what's going to happen. And I hear that <laughs> what I'm looking for is in the last chapter, but the last chapter is a very small portion of the book. So Kinda. I felt like he sort of introduced parallel storylines, but only built out, I guess, what would be considered the main one. Um, but yeah, I would just say the biggest thing was I just got lost with the people um, yeah. and some of the stories and and listen, this is what these guys do. Their days are monotonous and repetitive. And there's, you know, we know this, right. They're just kind of wake up, do the same thing. Um, but I just got, uh, I don't know. No, I, and I, I think that's legitimate criticism. And so it's funny, as you say it, I'm kind of thinking about my experience of reading the book. And if you were to ask me most characters, like I wouldn't be able to tell you who most of the characters actually were in the book. But I still have like some right. big takeaways and some big ideas. And, sure. and it's funny. I wonder, like, when but my that's wife. That's the difference 
in the way that you and I think. Well, yeah, but I don't think it's what we were talking about before with you dropping anthropology and me getting a PhD in it. I think it's that right. that what <laughs> what it is is that I I grew up I grew up with a dad who was in politics and a mom who who effectively was in politics as well, and they are always talking about people they know. Like, like if my mom were to give you directions, she'd be like, okay, so you go over there by that place where <laughs> uh, the restaurant is that Bob Jones used to own. He doesn't own it anymore. And like, literally that restaurant was torn down in 1983. But like, that's how my mom gives directions. And then you cross under that bridge where so-and-so tried to kill herself. And it's like, what? But this is like how my parents <laughs> talk. They talk in like people. And it's funny because- when, when I first introduced my wife to my parents, they're like, where are you from? And she says where she's from. And they start trying to name all these people they know, and she doesn't know. And then, and then she, 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 they, they start telling her these stories of all these people. And maybe six months into our marriage, she goes, how do you keep up with all of these characters in these stories? And I said, I don't. Like, I don't know who they're right. talking about. Like, I just You're brushed looking off. For and so, so, so I think that maybe like, for me, when he's talking about all these characters, I'm not trying to keep them straight because I grew up with my parents and I know better than to try and keep characters straight. Do you know what right. I'm saying? And you're, and you're able to weave through the individual characters right. to pull out the bigger storyline. Right. And, and, and I, I am right. way too analytical. I'm like, well, right. is this the person that was on yeah. the bus yesterday morning? Is this the person that was four meters behind and he didn't get right. to, you know, travel out of the country? Um, so I got, yeah, I don't know, guys. Yeah, I just don't get bogged <laughs> down in that. Yeah, which I, which I totally understand, and I think that 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 in a lot of ways, you know, elucidates many differences between you and me, my good friend Michelle. Um, but 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 yeah, I just didn't get by. I mean, I totally agree with that critique. Like I like I said, there was a few times where I wanted to go back to the beginning, particularly when he starts talking about like people and their performances in actual races. I wanted to go like look up the performances in the races. I want to see what they actually ultimately ended up running and stuff uh, and I maybe mean, where they are now. Like, cause some of them could be like on the world championship teams now. And we don't know necessarily because this book was written, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, and, and, and yeah, it was hard for me to keep track of who was who, frankly. This either um, makes so me sound um, very stupid or just very devoted uh, to the book of the quarter, but I pulled out a Kindle. I have never used my Kindle. I got a Kindle. What is it? A white page? Is that what it's called? I don't even know the name of it. Years it ago. Kindle. Hmm. Well, it's one of the ones that has the, it's like the fancier one. I pulled it out because I was getting so <laughs> lost in the audio and who was who that I thought I am going to load this book on the Kindle because if I read it, if I see the names, maybe it'll help. And I had to pay 10 more bucks for that. There's an audible credit. There's 10 bucks for the Kindle. They don't even sync. I mean, I tried really hard. Um, but yeah, there were just too many of the same names and yeah, that's my biggest critique. So I think, sorry. I think that's legit. I think that's legit. And, and I, I think that, that some of my, my personal and professional proclivities kept that from being a problem for me, but even though I recognized that it was an issue. Sure. For sure. For sure. Um, Let's talk about some other things. Um, so some some other things uh, that are related to it. Oh, and by the way, that does remind me too. You mentioned like his running. Um, he does circle around at the very end and talk about sort of what it's meant to his running, even though, spoiler, Michelle, um, his bigger takeaways when he talks about the changes that were made for his running were, were less about, well, I took three minutes off my best half marathon. It's not that it's the way that he sees running and the way he approaches training now. Um, that's great. 
I can't so, which wait to is listen cool. to that. So, <laughs> Very excited. Um, Go to the but, last page, read the last line, read the last four words. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, but but yeah, I, I think that he um I think that he's just he was just trying to keep the focus on them, you know. That's right. um and, and I think that's good because his point in going there was to try and shed light on their culture, not to try and and improve himself as a runner. I think that improving himself as a runner might have been a bonus. Um, but, but, but his job the, was the opposite, was to try and take a backseat to that. Yeah, he goes all the way to the point of making it almost comical that he's there multiple times. In fact, I don't think at any point in time does he talk about feeling good during a run. <laughs> he talks about the, the race he does where they do all the laps. Like I his goal yeah. was not to get lapped. Right. It was, it was a six lap race. It was a 12 K six lap race. Yeah. And he doesn't, and he, he doesn't want to get he, lapped. He like, he self deprecates his ability, mm -hmm. uh, how he feels about the runs, the fact that he's got to get up early or whatever constantly, he had to stop the run and get on the bus. Like he does that constantly. So I think he, he actually overdid that to a point to where it was almost comical. Like I can't do this. And I I'll go back to, he talks about this. So running to him was getting up in the morning, uh, putting his shoes on, stepping out the front door, stumbling through a few steps and then hitting pace, running around a park on asphalt, coming home, maybe stretching, maybe not, and then going about his day. And that is not the picture he paints of these Ethiopian runners uh, in these running clubs. It's, it's, it's so dramatically different yeah. in a very simple way, in a way that he could have replicated, and he does in the last chapter of the book as best he can in the environment he grew up in. Um, but he, he just didn't. You know, he didn't grow up in that social structure of running. So I thought that was that was that was awesome. One one of my one of my favorite things that he talks about with that, because um, he talks multiple times throughout it how early they start the day, like the day is just <laughs> yeah. it's just like every day starts super early, right? Um, I like Michelle, this part. <laughs> Michelle is giving us a thumbs up, but but like um, and and so he had to to shift, you know, the way the way the, his mind worked as far as like staying up late at night and all that sort of thing, just being like super early mornings. But then at one point he he actually says he, he goes on this really long run, more than a 30 kilometer run, and they go at three o'clock in the morning or something. That's that's when they leave to go do it because it's a lot of it's on asphalt. Um, and they want to avoid a lot of the traffic that's moving into the city at the time. Um, and and at the end of that, he 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 says that for the runners that he was with, day and night don't really have any meaning. Not at all. <laughs> it's right. just it's just resting time and training time. And, and beyond that, it's just kind of, you do what you do, you know, you eat when you get hungry, you hydrate, you rest, then, oh, it's good time to go running now. Let's go running. Let's go training. Right. And I thought that was, that was fun and interesting um, because, because we, and, and it's also a reminder of how, um, how routinized the world, the Western world in which the three of us live is that, you know, things happen, certain things happen at night, certain things happen during the day. And those are things that are only supposed to happen a day. You know, certain things happen because it's the time that they're supposed to happen. Um, and, and I think that was one of the maybe not so minor changes that he underwent when he went there is he found that people don't tend to do things when they're supposed to happen. Um, they don't have these real rigid ideas about, about um, 
how certain things are only supposed to take places at certain times. Um, he goes to the length of making a water bottle of coffee the night before, mm -hmm. <laughs> laying all of his stuff out. So when they come wake him up, it's like, okay, I'm, 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 I'm ready. I'm ready. Right. Well, they're not, they're not doing that stuff. You know, they're not, oh, they right. don't need the coffee to get going no. the way that he does. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and in fact, they give him a hard time for drinking coffee on an empty stomach. <laughs> yeah. Um, they tell him it's going to hurt him. George. So we saw in the women's marathon that just happened um, in Eugene at the world athletic championships yeah. a few days ago, mm -hmm. um, the breakaway and an image that was posted. And you said, you know, I have a much better understanding of Ethiopians. Right. I have a much different outlook on Ethiopians running right on the heels of other runners after reading out of thin air. Yeah. Um, so this is like a big criticism of them and they do it, you know, on the road and on the track. Right. So what did you mean by that? Like what uh, did so, so, so it was funny. One of the things he taught, so all of their training is done in groups. Yep. Um, and it's not just like incidental and it's not because, Oh, I can motivate better if I have accountability partners and all that sort of thing. Like, like every single person trains with the group and the group works as a unit and, and they, they um, not only support one another, but they literally believe it's sort of an animistic belief that they get power and strength and conditioning from one Energy. another. Um, and, and so it's more than just, it's more than just, oh, we stick together and, and we hold each other accountable and we help push each other on runs. That's like, that's not it. Um, like the group is, is the core concept there. Right. Um, and, and when they are running together, they tend to run in single file, um, and they stay really close on each other's heels. And he talks on several occasions about how he'll like, let a few meters open up and they would snap their fingers at they it get and mad. point at their heels and say, you need to get back on my heels. Right. right. And, and so, so you can imagine how probably ridiculous this were to look if like, if you were just like standing on the edge of their training grounds and they're running through the forest. And like he's, like we said before, they don't run in a straight line on like a paved route. They're zigzagging all over the place and they're, they're staying right on each other's heels super squished close together even though they got the whole forest literally right yeah and i remember stepping yeah. in the same spots yep yeah depending depending yeah. on the surface like even if it's a flat surface the same spots if it's a rough surface with rocks and all that the same spots right. so they're not going to break your ankle but i, I want to make a but, but but imagine like imagine me and you eric going for a trail run and and like me literally running inches behind you and putting my foot at the same spot that every single one of your feet go. No, I know. And I think and that's, a, that's, that's just, that's, that's ridiculous to think about, but, but my, but, a difference but, 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 in but mindset yeah. that creates that because our mindset is we run together. We're accountability partners. We can, we can push one another and we're hanging out and having that. fun. Yeah. And you might get that from the snap, snap, right? He talks about that. Hey, you've, you've fallen off my heels. So I'm going to snap, snap, get back up. But the other thing they talk about is they do this zigzag running, mm -hmm. <laughs> not just to kind of choose the path or to make the hill less steep, but to let the person who's not as fast get back in. Mm -hmm. Like it's intentional. Right. And it's because we want to run together. I'm here for you. You're here for me. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, he, he goes through this and I, I'm trying to remember the, how he came to this. I, he was talking to a guy and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to remember the name, but it was, <laughs> we already went through that. It's okay. <laughs> well, the question was why 
are the Kenyans becoming more dominant? And the response is the Ethiopians aren't running together. No, yeah. They're not running as a team. Yeah. And he's got the Aramaic phrase where he says, when many threads come together, they can tie up a lion. Training is not an individualistic survival of the fittest pursuit, but rather yeah. a communal endeavor. And when he talks about some of these record breaking runs that are, are, are victories that the Ethiopians have, have accomplished, where it was not a single runner. Right. It was that single runner. It was the green protected. wave. Yeah, the green wave. And if you're on a track, if you've ever run in a bunch on a track, you understand this. Hmm. Running by yourself in a bunch on the track can be difficult. It can be painful. And it, it can ultimately determine your place, not based on your ability, but based on your inability to get out of whatever situation you get yourself in. And if you have two runners running with you, supporting you, knowing that their effort is for you, the green wave can make a big difference. And I, th but this all comes back to that communal teamwork. We are better together attitude. Yeah. Now I think you're, I, I, I'm, I'm really glad you, you mentioned that one particular mm -hmm. passage of the book, because I thought that was fascinating too. And, and it's, he, and he comes back to it a few times because he talks about how, mm -hmm. so you have these, these Ethiopians that go together to these international events and only one of them is going to get the big purse at the end. And so there has to come a time when one of them has to break away from the other ones. And, and, and the individualistic nature of prize money and podiums and medals and things like that, in some ways, um, it tattoos the communal training yeah. philosophy or communal training approach of the Ethiopians. Um, and, and so, yeah, that one coach or that one bus driver, whoever it was, he talks about how that is now seeped into where we are. Um, right. And I think that's that's fascinating and and in some levels tragic as well. But but yeah, to to so so to Michelle to to your question before, um, I I to me like I look at an Ethiopian doing that, I'm like yeah, that's how they run, and yeah. and that's now just that's just sort of what they do, and that's fine. That's how they run. Do you know what I mean? And so so and I understand why they run that way, and I understand the benefits of running that way, and I understand how that's such an important part of who they are that I don't look at anymore and think like it's a bad thing. I'm like, well, that's how they run. That's what they do. do you know? Yeah. Yep. Um, and and, and if anything, because I was in the middle of the book when I saw that, it's kind of endearing. I'm like, oh, look, they're doing what they do in the book. <laughs> yeah. you know? it, was kind of, it was fun to watch that. See On it. that communal thing, one of the things he says also, and I always look at these things from a coaching perspective, like what can I learn from this to help my runners or, or even coach myself better? And he talks about... Um, the group doesn't just push you to be faster because he talks about that like when they do their their speed work like it, it is all about dog eat dog in their yeah. speed work yeah so they're trying to kill each other yeah they, they are trying to kill each other that's what he tries that's what he actually says but he he goes the flip side too they're there to protect one another with the slow runs or the easy runs or the runs on the soft surfaces and he uses this this cool you know juxtaposed uh, story where he says, you know, we have these periods every once in a while where we'll take, you know, a few days off or maybe even a week off and a few people will come back injured and they come back injured because as soon as they're right. out of the community, the dog eat dog thing comes in <laughs> 
and they go kill themselves. Doesn't work. Yeah. Like, yeah. On these, you know, these runs and they're, they're just destroying themselves. They come back and then they're in the back of the pack. And he said, you can see it happening. You're like, it's, yeah. it's, it's obvious. It's not because they went off and they did a bender, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't not train. They overtrained. Right. And we try Fashion here fast. to use technology to, to create that. We try to say, you need to run and like, you have to tell the runner run easy or set your watch or, you know, pace pro or something like that from Garmin. But a, a group can do that. You know, I, I have actually talked on this podcast about how running with grace transformed my ability to get miles in and not injure myself because she's going to run when we go 10 miles, she's going to run from nine to nine thirty pace. I don't ever run nine thirty pace. You have to put something on me to pull me back to nine thirty pace, but I love running with grace. So I was putting in much bigger miles because she would slow me down. And I think that's the same, the same thing he was building with this communal approach to running. Yeah. Yeah. They talk about like giving pace duties to various people and it's, oh, and, it's and it's your responsibility to hold everybody back because it's your responsibility to protect everyone. That's like you, you are protecting the group by holding the pace back right. by, by choosing a route that is softer on the legs and helps people recover and things like that. And, and so by, by giving various people from top to bottom inside the group, the, the pacing and the route selection um, responsibilities, it makes everybody in the group responsible for the health and well-being of everybody else in the group. Yeah, he goes into that one that one story where they do the Coracanch run. You know, they're mm -hmm. on gravel, yeah. and the coach says, "You're going to lead for five k. You're going to lead for five k. You're going to lead for five k." Yeah. But he's really smart. He does it in twos. Mm -hmm. They all they and they run single file. Mm -hmm. They run. This is not a conversation, right? They run single file, but the two will switch off to the lead. Now, two things about this just blew me away. They don't use GPS watches, and he tells them to the second the pace he wants them to run per kilometer. Mm -hmm. They're out doing they knock this. it out. Yeah. I know it to the second. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're out doing it. And I can't even remember the times, but the guy, uh, Sadat, T-S-E-D-A-T, I think is his mm -hmm. name. He get that as he as they come by the bus and Crawley's falling off the back. He's on the bus now. As they come by the bus, he's in the back and the guy he's supposed to be partnering with is in the front. And you can just tell he's pissed off. Mm -hmm. And when they do the final turnaround. So they turn around, they've got five kilometers to the finish or whatever. And the coaches told him, just go, go as hard as you can. He blows to the front and just, just decimates <laughs> everybody. Mm -hmm. And the, the coach says, yeah, he's pissed off. Mm -hmm. And after it all together, they get together. He's yelling at the other runner. To, and he, I think he's saying you were running like three seconds faster per kilometer. And that wasn't the plan. You weren't following right. the plan. And they finally, the coach finally like gets them on the bus because all these farmers are around. He doesn't want the farmers to like see this argument. And then, then they go around, they have a conversation on the bus. But that level of like duty to the team, because Sadat wasn't saying you didn't do what you were told. He was saying you were stealing energy from the other runners. You were hurting the herd for yourself. And that is inappropriate and I won't stand for it. It was, it was just cool. I yeah. had, it was yeah. really cool. We should, we should mention Michael Crawley is a one Oh six half marathoner. Like, right. He's not yeah. a bad runner. Yeah. At all. yeah. He's a good runner. And so, so he, he definitely had to be a good runner in order to be able to keep up with them on their runs 
at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was funny. He refers a few times to the bus driver who had a PR for 10K that's three seconds faster than Crawley's PR. <laughs> and and Crawley's like, why didn't you keep running? And he says, well, it was clear to me I wasn't going to be, be able to make it as a runner. <laughs> and Crawley's <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> you're three seconds faster than me and you did yours at altitude. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that, yeah. That reminds me, Michelle, you listened to the book. What is the accent of the person reading the book? British. British. Okay, so it's yeah. a British. It's accent. not Michael Crawley okay. who reads it because that was one. It's not Michael, and I. Yeah. I no, the no, other I problem also is I feel like I've heard this guy read many books. Mm. I've definitely heard him before, okay. so it was hard to. I, I personally like when the author reads the audio. I, I just I find it much better, um, a much I better like listen. Better but, but I'm always you know, but I'm but I'm really happy to. I can get more done. I can get through more books if I listen and read and pulled out the Kindle this time, but you me know, too. Um, me too. Yeah, I, I, I went back and forth between listening to this one and reading it um, yeah. as I've done for most of ours. But yeah, I, I like it when the author reads it as well, because you pick up on the intonations better. The only yeah. one, the only book that I haven't really liked all that much, the author read was uh, Matthew McConaughey's book, which everybody else loved. And I didn't really like it all that much. And I which swear to God, that? Matthew McConaughey was just bored by the end and he was just phoning it in. Um, of his own book. <laughs> yeah. It's called green lights. Um, oh. Yeah. Um, all right. We got to wrap it up here because we've been talking for an hour here about this this book, which I I actually really enjoyed. But but I can't wrap it up without actually sharing because I mentioned that, that to both of you, um, he he has a couple of places where he goes into okay, so why do we run? Um, and whenever anybody travels, um, so whenever either of you travel, whenever I travel, particularly if you travel to someplace far away, um, it makes you being in a different place makes you reflect on your home right? It, it, it takes you out of, of your norm and it makes you see what is your norm with new eyes in a different light, right? Um, and, and even though he did keep the focus throughout the book on the culture of the Ethiopians, he did on a few different occasions reflect on his own experience and his own running and why we do this and, and what his practices were and how they differ and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and at one point, it was during actually his describing that cross-country race, that extremely competitive cross-country race um, <laughs> that, that Eric mentioned before, the six-loose cross-country race, where he was last throughout the entire race. And every time he was about to catch somebody, they drop out. <laughs> yeah, but they all dropped out. Exactly. <laughs> and then he'd be right about to catch somebody else, and they drop out. But, so he, does last. Um, but he does explain why they drop right, out. Right, right. Because they're not, they're not there to finish last. They're there right. to finish first. They'll I mean, that's, yeah. And he, sa he says the whole group took off just like they were shot out of a cannon. Um, and, and, but anyway, in that he's talking about how he's struggling through it and he's in a deep amount of pain and he's in last place and all the fans are like, who is this foreigner guy? What is this guy doing? You know? And, and, and he's, he's sort of talking about that and he uses that as an entryway to talking about, okay, so why do we run? So why do we do this? Um, and he had, and this is the passage and it's a lengthy passage, but I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing. <laughs> um, he writes, the English professor, poet, and runner Thomas Gardner describes this kind of mid-race wobble beautifully. Quote, at some point in almost every race, you get lost. You open up your eyes and realize you're in trouble. Your heart rate rises, your confidence buckles, and you're suddenly flailing around inside with no landmark save for a familiar hatred of yourself and the ego that made you line up and race. You slow down and you turn on yourself. Unquote. I think most runners can relate to this feeling. 
It is one that I, like Gardner, seem to have in almost every race, the exceptions being the really good ones. You realize that your preparation wasn't as good as you thought. You're not ready to participate in the, such a world at such a pace, as Gardner puts it. And yet the process of getting through what I would call a bad patch and what Gardner is able to evoke far more eloquently is hugely rewarding. Gardner again writes, quote, the body does have limits and your finger will eventually fumble everything you love. But go on and think about what you could build there, sentence by stunning sentence, your words most alive when they are most disappointed in themselves. What else would you, why else would you race? Why go back there year after year, unquote. This, it seems to me, is what racing and running more generally does for people, because in every race, there are far more losers than winners. And in Ethiopia, everyone is racing to win because there seems to be something deeply human about ways about always wanting a bit more, even if you run well, because the other side of disappointment is hope. And we thrive on imagining ourselves that little bit better next time. The number of conversations I've had with people who have just run a personal best and who still focus on the fact that they think they could have gone faster attests to this. We are not easily satisfied. And so we keep going back week after week, year after year. I love that. I just listened to that. Where is that in the book? So that is on page 89 and 90. That is in chapter five. Two? Okay, Um, chapter five, yeah. Chapter five. It's in the tail end of when he's talking about that race, when he's hurting and wondering why the hell he does this. Um, And (laughs) I appreciated not only, of course, his own thoughts about it, but but his quoting uh, the English poet and runner, Thomas Gardner as well, about that uh, that very thing. So um, I've always said that that I think that the, the, the allure of running, and it took me, almost 30 years to figure this out the allure of running is the synergism of it um the the way that that you're continually trying to go back and get better and improve yourself and that maybe if you can improve yourself through this running thing you can improve yourself in other ways as well um and i think that's kind of what he's touching on there and i really really like that passage like i said i didn't want to let the entire book review go by and not talk about that (laughs) um so that's my final thought on the book michelle what's your final thought on the book And then I'll go, Eric, to your final thought. Well, I would probably read it again because I think that, and I've read all these reviews and and really struggled with why I couldn't get into it and enjoy it the way that you guys could. So I think for me, it's just maybe like a different place in a different time with less distractions, less travel, less illness. um, And I would like to read it again. Michelle, I'll give you kudos for sticking it out. I give you kudos for sticking it out. Um, It was tough. (laughs) Yeah. And I, and I appreciate you sticking it out, not only because because uh, I appreciate your tenacity, but also because you were able to bring something to the conversation here on the podcast by sticking it out. So, um, but yeah, thanks for doing that. Why don't you, while we're at it here, um, you want to say what our next book of the quarter is going to be before we go to, uh, to Eric for his, uh, his last thoughts? Because I think the next book of the quarter is going to be something that you like a little bit more. <laughs> sure. So I guess it's my choice. Um, this is actually George's is recommendation, I'm but I'm very excited that George was like, well, you can choose, but if it were up to me, I would choose this. Um, it's Molly Huddle and Sarah Slattery's newish book, How She Did It, Stories, Advice, and Secrets to Success from 50 Legendary Distance Runners. Um, obviously, as it says, it's like a vignette of a bunch of different stories. My understanding is it's woven together beautifully, and I feel like I'm one of the only people I know that hasn't read it yet. So I'm excited to read it with you guys and hopefully enjoy it as much as uh, most people seem to be enjoying it. So good. Good. Uh, Yeah. I I, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I think it should be fun. I actually already have it. 
Um, you do? I do. Um, oh, wow. And so, so it's, it's been, it's been on my nightstand for a little while. Um, and I've been wanting to read it and I actually kind of forgot about it for a little while. And then, and then, um, but yeah, it, it came out what, like, like six months ago, right? I would uh, say six to nine months. I mean, Molly Huddle had a baby. I think she's 12 weeks postpartum. Yeah. So probably six months ago, it came out maybe somewhere okay. six to nine months ago. So yeah. Very good. Very good. So I'm looking forward to reading that. Um, cool. Uh, Eric, final thoughts on Out of Thin Air by Michael Crawley. So I got a lot out of this and to package all that into a final thought would be very difficult, but I did have, and I'm not sure it's my favorite passage, but it was a passage as me being the tech guy that really kind of resonated with me. Um, and it's, he's, so Crawley's talking about his friend Zelike, Z-E-L-E-K-E. -E. Um, and he, he, he has this watch that he won, uh, finishing second in a, a marathon in China. And he looks at the watch and he says, the watch says I burned 1600 calories yesterday. But to be honest, I have no idea how I'm going to replace them. <laughs> and he goes on, I mean, it gets better. And he, and he explains that he started buying really expensive food simply because the food says how many calories it has on right. it. The packaging has the calories, which is not something that would be normal in Ethiopia when you're buying food in a market per se. And because he doesn't want to lose anything through his running. Right. So he says that this is going to come up again and again and again. And, and so here's, here's where I, where it comes back though, about the watch, rather than using the watch to see how fast he can run or to celebrate having burned calories, uh, as many people might, he uses the watch to see how slowly he can run in the forest. He says, you know, they stand there and then the light turns green and they, go across the road and they go up into the woods. He says, we run in silence punctuated only by the swishing of three jackets and the tired scuffing of feet until we hear a loud beep. Zelike glances at his wrist and laughs. Seven minutes and 12 seconds, he shouts. This is per kilometer, right. right? This is per kilometer, not mile. On subsequent days, this becomes something of a game. We see how little running we can do in 40 minutes. But after using the watch for a while, Zelike starts traveling to other parts of the city to run to the farmland and Sindafa, for example, where he says the kilometers come more easily for the same amount of effort. The introduction of GPS watches actually starts to transform the way and the places in which he runs in this case. The point being that the technology is there, it's presented and it's used in a completely different manner. Right. Right. And I love that. And the reason why it's used in a completely different manner is the social structure and the why to why they're running. Mm -hmm. Zelike is not running for health like we talked about. He's running for a profession. Zelike is running to get enough marathons under his belt outside of the country that he can retire comfortably. And in a country like Ethiopia, a big prize race, one big prize race could set up him and his family for the rest of their lives. And they talk about this again and again and again. A couple of good races could just be excess. That's that's a totally different reason for running. It's a totally different why. And I think it's really special the way that's juxtaposed about why we do what we do and how we do it. I think so too. I think it was super fun. Eric, Michelle, thank you once again for reading another interesting book with me that I might not have pulled off the shelf or, or put onto my phone to listen to had it not been for the two of you. And I appreciate it. Um, I'm looking forward to what's next. 
I am looking forward to reading How She Did It by Molly Huddle and Sarah Slattery. Um, and I hope that some of y'all will join us as well. Michelle, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Eric, seven weeks of the Blue Ridge Relay, buddy. I mean, God I'm forbid excited. we didn't mention Blue Ridge Relay <laughs> in one podcast. Thanks, George. Thanks, y'all. Thanks again for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast, on Twitter at pleasantpodcast, or on Instagram, Most Pleasant Exhaustion. We're available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, so share us with your friends. Don't forget that we're sponsored by ITL Coaching and Performance, who you can find at itlcoaching.com, on Twitter at itlcoaching, on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingperformance, and on Instagram, ITL Coaching. We're also sponsored by Blue Pineapple Travel, bluepineappletravel.com, facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, and on Instagram, bluepineappletravel. And finally, don't forget we're sponsored by SlayRx. That's slayrx.com, facebook.com slash here for SlayRx. That's the number four, SlayRx. Twitter, at official SlayRx, and Instagram, here for SlayRx, the number four, SlayRx. Discount code PLEASANT22. On behalf of Michelle Frank, Patrick Ollinger, and Eric Hall, I'm George Darden. Thanks for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.